All right, we're going to look to the book of 2 Samuel. I invite you to join me there if you have a copy of God's Word in either print or digital form. Continuing our road trip through the Bible, Route 66, looking to cover all 66 books of the Bible in this calendar year. Uh, God is continuing to carry out His rescue plan as we come to 2 Samuel. Uh, It was a rescue plan that was inaugurated back in the Garden of Eden when sin and death entered into the world. God, in His grace, provided a promise, a promise that He would send a deliverer through the offspring of Eve. And that promise was, uh, through the centuries, reiterated to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob, and God was working that plan through the nation of Israel It was through Abraham that he would bring about this great deliverer. And now as we come into 1 and 2 Samuel, we find that this deliverer is now linked to David. We're getting more clues about the nature of that great deliverer. He's going to come as a king in the vein of King David. So our study in David is very important for that reason because it tells us a lot about our coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The people, uh, of course, wanted a king like the nations around them, and so God gave them Saul. Saul was outwardly impressive, uh, consummate warrior, tall, strong, imposing, But then God establishes David as the king of his choosing. And David was not particularly impressive from the standpoint of stature, but he was a man after God's own heart, a humble shepherd king. And this is the pattern that points us to Christ. Uh, In 1 Samuel, we were able to consider David alongside of Saul. We had kind of an interesting contrast of these two kings. But now, 2 Samuel begins now that Saul has died. And so David alone takes the stage. And we are now given a much more comprehensive look at David's life. Matter of fact, we probably know more about David than we do about anyone other than Jesus himself. Uh, We're given the good, the bad, and the ugly about David. And there's a lot of material. Just to put this in perspective, I was looking back to my sermon schedule from 2015. I preached 21 sermons on the life of David. And we're going to do it in a sermon and a half. right? So, uh, again, get that overview and hopefully pick up on the predominant threads that run through David's, David's life. Uh, just for your, if you want to organize your thoughts, our, our outline will focus on the triumphs, chapters 1 through 10. These are David's virtues and, and the things that were accomplished through David, and we see his heart here. I think it's, we really get a good glimpse as to why David was a man after God's own heart. And then, chapters 11 through 20, David's troubles, uh, his sins, and all of the devastating consequences that flow out of that. And then uh, we'll close with some takeaways from chapters 21 through 24. Uh, We get a a good glimpse at David's legacy, some some final closing thoughts that the the, the narrator wants us to remember as we close out the David account. 
Am I on there? You might need to advance it there, Andrew, if I can't. Reset my power button, maybe. There we go. All right, very good. All right, first of all, loyalty and compassion. This is one of the things that jumps out about David's life, and it jumps out early. Uh, as we open Second Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan are lying dead on Mount Gilboa. They had been killed in battle with the Philistines. One of the survivors from that battle travels three days uh, to bring David the news of Saul's death. And he comes with the crown and Saul's armband, the symbols of royalty, and he delivers them to David. And you can almost sense there's some excitement in the air here. Uh, finally, Saul, this, this ungodly guy, is off the scene and David can now assume the throne. And so this messenger arrives and, and David's not nearly as excited as this guy is. <laughs> David says, how do you know that Saul is dead? And, and he says, well, uh, I found him mortally wounded there on Mount Gilboa. He asked me to, to, to put him out of his misery, and I did. And David says, how could you, why, why would you not be afraid to kill the Lord's anointed? Right? Remember, David himself had a couple of opportunities, prime opportunities to kill Saul. And he didn't because he had this view of God's sovereignty. And he recognized that any human being who came into leadership position, had been placed there by God. And so David did not feel that he could in any way extend a hand against Saul. Even though Saul was ungodly, he was a jerk, he was arrogant, but David still, out of respect for God, did not raise a finger against Saul. And so when this guy comes and says, I I killed Saul, I put him out of his misery, here's the crown, David was not happy, and he actually gave orders for this man, this messenger, to be killed. Even after Saul is dead, David still determines to show honor to this ungodly man who had repeatedly tried to kill him. He wrote a song of lament. It's captured here at the end of chapter 1. And he required the people of Israel to learn it and to sing it. How the mighty have fallen. David would have had many reasons to hate Saul. And yet he shows tremendous loyalty to Saul and compassion to Saul's uh, living relatives. And uh, David again understood that it was God who establishes authority. And even though our leaders are not anointed in the same way that they were in Israel, the principle remains. Paul unpacks it for us in no uncertain terms in Romans 13 to say that even ungodly leaders are established by God. And we would do well to remember it in the midst of a season of great political discord. Repeated commands to pray for kings, to honor the emperor, etc., etc. So we see a a loyalty and a high view of God's sovereignty uh, in David's reign. We see a peaceful transition of power. Israel rallied around David and he was formally anointed as king in Hebron. Uh, Ishbosheth, one of Saul's other sons, revolted and tried to claim his father's throne. The result was an extended period of conflict between the house of Saul and the house of David. 
would have been customary for a new king to kill all the descendants of the former king so that there would be no claims to the no rival claims to the throne but david established a very different pattern at the outset of his kingdom he did not tolerate that kind of vigilante justice matter of fact two of ishbosheth's servants uh, staged a coup they, they, they snuck into Ishbosheth's palace, and while he was relaxing, they killed him. And they cut off his head, and they brought Ishbosheth's head to David, saying, Ah, oh, we've killed your political enemy. You'd think they would have learned by now, right? <laughs> David was not at all happy with this news. As a matter of fact, he ordered that those two servants be killed. Say, this does not seem like a peaceful transition of power, <laughs> Right? There's a lot of bloodshed here, but notice that David is, matter of fact, David put those two servants, he put their bodies on the wall in the public square at Hebron. He said, this kind of vigilante justice will not be tolerated. We're not going to act like that. We're not going to operate on the basis of vengeance. And so David, even though there was initial bloodshed, David established a culture of peace in Israel. And then he's back to work. This is one of the other notable things about David. Uh, he, he was active in doing what God had called him to do. Uh, Israel is united. And instead of fighting each other, they turn their attention to their enemies. God had commanded them. Back with Joshua, you remember, when they first came into the land, God said, these are wicked nations who offer their children as sacrifices to the gods. I've endured their wickedness long enough. God said, I want you to be my my tool of judgment against these nations. And so God had given them specific instructions. And David actually, all the way along, had been carrying out those instructions. But now he picks up where Joshua left off to do a task that Saul had ignored. And he engages in this in no uncertain terms. As a matter of fact, we, we are told that David's coronation had been held in Hebron, not Jerusalem. Never know what's going to happen in a service, do we? Uh, David's coronation had been held in Hebron, not in Jerusalem, because the Jebusites, the Jebusites controlled Jerusalem. And the Jebusites were some of those people that God had spoken against. And so David uh, attacked Jerusalem, conquered the city, made it the capital. The Philistines come onto the scene. They gather for war. David inquires of the Lord and leads Israel in victory against the Philistines. So we just see David doing what God had asked him to do. There's a new set of priorities that uh, certainly surfaces as well. Uh, Before Saul was king, so we're going back 40 years now, before Saul was even king, the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, was captured by the Philistines. Eventually it was returned to Israel. And it had remained in the house of a man named Abinadab. In his 40 years as king, Saul never paid any attention to the Ark of the Covenant. Even though it represented God's presence among his people. But one of David's first acts was to retrieve the Ark and restore Israel's worship. In the process, David learned a painful lesson about God's holiness. But it was ultimately a beautiful scene as David led the Ark of the Covenant in a royal procession into the city of Jerusalem. 
David actually removed his royal robes and he danced at the head of the procession along with the commoners. David's wife, Michal, uh, did not approve. (laughs) She was the daughter of King Saul. Saul would certainly not have removed his royal robes and danced in this way. How undignified. What would the people think? But that was exactly the point. Saul was always so concerned about what the people thought. David was completely oblivious to the opinions of the people. He was so concerned and fixated on pleasing the Lord. It was fitting here that in this scene of bringing the ark back, that God would establish his covenant with David. Look in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men. But My love will never be taken away from him. God commits himself to David and his house. Uh, promises to establish a king on the throne of David that will reign forever. Again, pointing ahead to that descendant of David Jesus Christ. David shows us here, again, how to seek the approval of God instead of the approval of people. This is such a distinctive uh, of David's reign. David does some interesting things uh, in the midst of many of his uh, military victories. Um, We read about many of these victories in chapter 8. Notice verse 4 of chapter 8. David captured 1,000 of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but 100 of the chariot horses. So this is an account of one of his victories, and David did something very unusual here, didn't he? Uh, He captures these chariots and the horses that pull the chariots. I mean, this is the latest military technology, right? And he hamstrings all but 100 of the horses. Now, this didn't really hurt the horses. Well, it would have hurt a little bit, but not long-term. They would have recovered, and they would have been used. You could use that horse to to pull a cart. A horse would have given you a ride over to Grandma's house. But you would not have been able to take those horses into battle. They were no longer fit for battle. Why would David do that? David David wanted to keep certain, certain boundaries in place that would help him to trust in God and not in horses and chariots. matter of fact, he wrote about it in the Psalms, didn't he? Uh, some trust in horses and chariots, but I, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And, and the kings were given specific restrictions not to amass many horses. So David was very clear in keeping his trust in the Lord. Uh, same thing came as it related to his possessions. Look at verse 11 of chapter 8. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So once again, he refused to enrich himself uh, with the plunder. And we're told this wasn't just a one-time thing. This was his pattern. Whenever he would conquer uh, one of these pagan kings, 
he would dedicate all that plunder to the Lord. And so, again, we see some of the ways in which David maintained his confidence, not in wealth, not in military might, but in the Lord. To me, very convicting. Where's your confidence, right? We can uh, try to put our confidence in a great many things, whether it's our, our money or our position or our, our friendships. Uh, David had a very, maintained a very clear sense of confidence in the Lord. And then covenant faithfulness, another hallmark of David's reign. Saul's son, Jonathan, had been David's best friend. David had entered into a covenant with Jonathan. And after Jonathan died, David determined to show kindness to the household of Jonathan. Now, this is very unusual. Again, you would usually not put up with uh, the descendants of the previous king. That was dangerous business. But David had made a covenant. And he found out that Jonathan had a disabled son named Mephibosheth. And King David brought Mephibosheth to the palace and provided for him for the rest of his life. There's nothing really in this for David, but David was just showing steady, covenant, unfailing love. It struck me that we can be so fickle in our relationships. We can get bent out of shape. We can give up on people. We can just choose to love people that are easy to love, people that love us back, Boy, God's love is manifested here in David's life and uh, should spur us on to show this kind of covenant love. So all these things marked David's uh, reign. And then we come into a section of trouble. latter half of the book provides really, again, a full picture of David. Not airbrushed, but all the warts and David's sins. Matter of fact, uh, the one sin we're most familiar with is here in chapter 11 is sin with Bathsheba. But chapter 24, the very last chapter, includes really David's second big sin, one we don't think about quite so much. So this whole last section is kind of bookended by David's sin, and it unpacks all of the destructive consequences. I call it a midlife crisis. David got into trouble in midlife uh, during a season of peace and prosperity. Let's read The account here in chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David had peace over his enemies, and instead of going out to war as he normally did, he hung back and allowed Joab to go out and lead the armies. So here was Uh, The first sort of red flag. David had a lot of time on his hands. He was not occupied in doing good things. And one evening there, as he was up on the roof of the palace, he saw this woman bathing. Uh, Seems a little strange to us. We think, what in the world was this woman thinking? Well, this would have been customary to bathe on your rooftop. It just so happened that the palace was much higher than all the other rooftops. The problem is not with Bathsheba. The problem is with David. And he begins to... uh, 
Uh, again, our next, our next red flag here is that David begins to uh, inquire about her. Who is this woman, right? He begins to allow his mind to go down some certain paths. And uh, the, the, the man who reports back to David actually does him a big favor. Uh, he, he warns David in at least three ways. <laughs> he said, that's Bathsheba. Like, she has a name. It, you know, this is a person, right? And she's someone's daughter, She's the daughter of Eliam, and she's someone's wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You read on to the end of Samuel, you find that Uriah was actually one of David's mighty men, one of his elite troops, a man that had fought many battles on David's behalf. So this man tries to, to communicate to David, this woman is off limits, Right? David was not to be deterred. David had put himself in a position where he was above accountability. And an unaccountable life is a dangerous life. I believe it's one of the beautiful aspects of God's design for the church. God has not uh, redeemed us to live independent Spiritual free agents. Matter of fact, that's a very dangerous place to be. So the church, with all of its foibles, and we hurt each other's feelings, and we uh, we burn bridges, and we uh, we we don't always handle prayer requests well, and some people are just plain irritating. But in all of that, there's a safeguard. There's accountability. There's people who are willing to speak truth into our lives, even when it's uncomfortable, and we need that. We desperately need that. David, again, models for us the dangers of a life lived in isolation above authority and community. This was not some innocent mistake, but a willful disregard for God's laws. And when David learns that she is pregnant, he then compounds his sin by trying to cover it up. Bathsheba's husband Uriah was away at battle, so David invites Uriah back into town uh, to get a report on the battle, hoping that Uriah will go home and sleep with his wife and uh, assume that the child is his. But Uriah is much too honorable for that. Uriah spends the night there at the doorway of the palace. And David actually confronted him about it the next morning. Why why didn't you go home? He said, Joab, my commander, and all of my fellow soldiers are risking their lives out in the field. How could I go home and have a warm meal and sleep with my wife? So David concocts the next phase of his plan. He sends back word, actually with Uriah. Uriah takes the message back to Joab, the military commander. And Joab is told to put Uriah in the most dangerous point of the battle and then to pull back so that Uriah would be killed. This is the the web that David weaves in his sin. And the result is death, dysfunction, and duplicity. Nathan the prophet confronts David, chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him, and his 
children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David's anger burned against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Nathan says, David, you used the sword. And now that sword is never going to leave your house. And it came to pass. David and Bathsheba's child died. David's son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. David's other son Abnon, or Absalom killed Amnon as an act of revenge. David is now estranged from Absalom. Absalom grows bitter, tries to betray his father and take the throne. David is forced to flee Jerusalem. Eventually, David regains the throne, but his son Absalom is killed in the conflict. Now he's lost two sons. And as a result of all this, the nation is deeply divided. Many of the people have been following Absalom. They were not inclined to follow David again. Sheba, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, rises up and leads many of the tribes in revolt against David. And this whole section ends with Sheba being beheaded. What a mess, right? The sword did not leave David's house. David reminds us of the seriousness of sin, and it reminds us that There are no private sins. Your sin affects those around you, has wide-sweeping consequences, even if no one else is consciously aware of it. God is aware of it. This section also includes repentance. Remarkably, David was not removed as king. David's sins actually seem more serious than the sins of Saul. But unlike King Saul, David was restored. Why? I think the real key is how David responded to his sin. We were to go back to chapter 12, verse 13, the whole confrontation with Nathan, rebuking David. It says that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan goes into this big diatribe describing why David's sin was so, so reprehensible. And David says, you're right. (laughs) No excuses. He just humbly confessed that he was wrong. We see it again actually in chapter 24 with this other great scene of sin. And in that case, there's no Nathan the prophet to confront David. We're told that David's own conscience began to bother him. (laughs) And he confessed to the Lord. So David provides a wonderful model, not as a perfect man, but 
as one who was responsive to God's word and the conviction of the spirit, he maintained a sensitive conscience. David gives us a a great uh, template for how we are to approach God in humble faith and repentance. Have you come to acknowledge your sin? This is, this is the pattern of the gospel, that before we can receive God's good offer of salvation, we have to first recognize our own sin. The fact that we are estranged, deserving of God's wrath and judgment. And come to him as a beggar seeking bread. David models it here for us so well, and I think it's one of the reasons that he's identified as a man after God's own heart. We see a great statement about justice in chapter 21. Here's kind of just a summary section at the end. Um, There's a famine, and uh, David inquires of the Lord and realizes it's because of some injustices that Saul had perpetrated during his reign as king. And David sets out to make that right. I think justice is such a prevailing theme uh, for, for David. There's a section on praise. Uh, David pens a song here. Uh, All these military victories, and yet David extends a song of praise to God. He recognizes that it was God who enabled him to prevail against his enemies. There's a great uh, statement here in chapter 23 as well. Um, The last words of David We're actually told that the Spirit of the Lord spoke through David. God communicated something through David, chapter 23, verse 3. And I think this really captures David's reign and why it was so significant. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. So David's reign, think about where we've just come, right out of the judges and chaos and violence and injustice and brutality and anarchy. And David's reign, as one who reigned under the fear of the Lord, was a breath of fresh air. I mean, it's like the cold winter, right, that drags on and on, and it's the first ray of sunshine on an early spring day that signals the coming of spring. This is what David's reign was like for the people. David wasn't the be-all, end-all. But again, he's pointing us ahead to the one who would come in his line, who would assume the throne and establish an eternal kingdom. David gives credits. David's obviously the main character, but I find this section in chapter 23 so encouraging. God used many others to bring about the victory. This is the listing of David's mighty warriors and a, a reminder that um, what we're doing in our, little, in our little parts of the world matters, right? Uh, most of us are not going to have the position and the, the influence and the power of David, but for every David, there's a whole host of mighty men who are working in the background, fighting over bean fields and, and, and uh, defeating warriors in the midst of hopeless circumstances. And, and uh, we, we are called to be faithful in our own particular assignments as part of a great army. I love that. That make, make good lunchtime reading for your family, chapter 23. And then finally, an altar of atonement, chapter 24. Um, 
I told you that these final chapters, 21 through 24, are not in chronological order. Actually, chapter 24 should be right in here alongside the Bathsheba account. But the narrator chose to put it at the end. I think because it communicates something really significant about David's reign, and it, again, points ahead to Christ. And uh, we're actually going to be unpacking that tonight briefly as part of our communion service. So uh, you're going to miss out a little bit on chapter 24 if you're not here this evening. But uh, it's such a powerful depiction of Christ. David has to offer an offering to appease God's wrath. And he offers it there on the mountain in Jerusalem. And I think, again, provides a wonderful insight into the work that Christ would carry out when he came. A few gospel glimpses. Jesus is the eternal king who comes in the line of David. Again, we're, David provides a pointer for us. Bathsheba is listed among four other suspect women in the genealogy of Jesus. That whole sordid tale is somehow drawn into Matthew chapter 1, incorporated into the genealogy of Jesus. And I think it's, it's to communicate God's grace. You say, I'm here with baggage, Pastor. I'm not sure God is really interested in me. I'm not sure there's forgiveness for what I've done. Hey, join the club. Right? I mean, this is the nature of Jesus' ministry, is to bring redemption to people who are lost and know it. And Bathsheba is a poster child for that and how God brought his grace to bear. Jesus was the ultimate atoning sacrifice offered on the mountain of Jerusalem to appease God's righteous anger. Again, this is depicted in chapter 24. So wonderful perspectives pointing us ahead to Christ.